0: For Diane Okay,
1: great. Well, welcome everyone. This is the ninth of a series of nine. Uh, and um, a lot a, a significant number of people have expressed a desire to or that we organize another series on this subject since we, always we only got to a certain point, obviously. And uh, so why we're asking to have your emails is that we haven't had a chance to plan that yet or to figure out what it might be. I mentioned last week uh, that there might be a weekend in March, but, uh, uh, so I don't have any hard information for you. Um, so uh, you'll hear from us by email if and how we can find a good way to, to reschedule this. We'll probably keep the t- same time slot because that's, uh, you're all here. And um, we'll let you know, okay? Uh, the subject today... That we thought we'd end our series on, uh, on Judaism and Christianity, Shared Origins, Different Paths, that was the title, is that Hanukkah just ended, and Christmas is around the corner. And this is the season of festivals of light, and uh, uh, solstice time, and both Judaism and Christianity, along with most other cultures, have a celebration this time of year. So, look at the origins of the celebration the influences remember we're all on the you know everybody in the northern hemisphere is following the same seasonal pattern so anybody in the time before electric lights everybody got to the best show at night was the sky right and figuring out how long the day was and when the moon was coming and why the and when the days might lengthen again and all of that—that was—that's what we paid attention to. So it's no mystery what the quote-unquote origins of various solstice festivals would be. It's our human experience of living in the northern hemisphere, especially uh, the southern hemisphere. They have their you know it's, it's the height of summer uh, right now, and so I—that's um, uh, when I was in New Zealand last February. That was interesting and weird. Um, and we celebrated Jewish holidays that were completely opposite of what I was used to, because you know, they were getting ready for Passover in the fall. And there we were, celebrating what's called in the, in the Torah Chag Ha'aviv, the festival of spring, in the fall. But that's, that's what globalization is all about. So anyway, so we're going to be, we won't cover everything, but I'm delighted that uh, Suzanne, and Susan are here. Matthew is with his mom, who is having back surgery, so he couldn't be here today, and, uh, uh, so that we can address this subject today. And I'll say one other thing before we begin, which is that the next scheduled offering of the Lev Shalem Institute is five Sunday mornings starting in, and that doesn't work for churchgoers, I know, uh, starting in January 10th, called Memoir and Midrash, a writing workshop with Judy Kerman, who's a member of our congregation, who's a professor emerita of English uh, from um, uh, uh, Michigan, and is a a poet, a published uh, writer, and has run a small press for many years. And she loves teaching writing. That was one of the things she taught while she was a professor. And wants to, uh, uh, so you can look at the flyer, which is in the lobby, if it interests you. We'd love to have you, if that speaks to you. Uh, Judy's a good teacher, okay, so let me ask Suzanne, would you like to start us off? Shall we pass these around? okay
2: So what I'm prepared to talk about actually is the story itself um, before we get to the festivals and celebration and all that. Um, so, in keeping with what Matthew has done, I thought that I would just briefly. Give you a handout um, and, and speak about uh, the actual stories of the infancy narratives in the Bible, and that's what we observe at Christmas. But um, before doing that, there's just one point I want to make, and the whole, and this today, and this point is that um, the story is there for us, for us to interiorize. So I have a quote from Meister Eckhart, a Christian mystic of um, that spans the, um, well, his, his dates are 1260 to 1328, and he writes this, we are all meant to be mothers of God. What good is it to me if this eternal birth of the divine son takes place unceasingly but does not take place within myself. And what good is it to me if Mary is full of grace, but I am not also full of grace? What good is it to me for the creator to give birth to his son, if I do not also give birth to him in my time and my culture? This then is the fullness of time when the Son of Man is begotten in us. And that's reflected in a lot of prayers and hymns. Um, we sing, let every heart prepare him room. And we have a beautiful collect, an ancient collect, um, that we say on the Sunday before Christmas, um, where we say, um, w- when we pray, that we would create in our hearts a mansion for God. Uh, that we pray to God that that your son at his coming may find in us a mansion prepared for himself. So what the Christmas holiday is all about is that interiorization of the deity. It's very much like when you look at Tibetan mandalas, and you know, you know, they're two-dimensional, but they're meant to represent three-dimensional. The Rubin Museum had this fantastic exhibit a few years ago where it showed three-dimensional mandalas, and there was actually um, a, um, a video of where you enter two-dimensionally and it pops up three-dimensionally. Did anybody see this? It was just so awesome. But anyway, so the whole purpose of the mandala is your teacher gives you a particular mandala, and in Tibet, in Tibetan um, religion, there's like two thousand somebody, yeah, how many deities, and the teacher gives you a particular mandala because that teacher feels that you need to take on the characteristics of that particular deity. So you, you go into the mandala, into the maze, and you have to go through all the obstacles, there's guts, you know, <laughs> and then there's um, demons and all kinds of stuff, and you go round and round and round, and you make your way, and, make it. and then the deity's at, at the top of the mandala, the three-dimensional mandala, and by that time, supposedly through your deep meditation, you've taken on the characteristics of that deity, and then you come back out. And I think that that's a really good analogy for what I think Christianity is trying to do with the hero's journey of the Jesus figure who, um, when, when you follow the Jesus figure, you go through all these, it's very similar to a mandala, you go through all these uh, tests and um, obstacles and difficulties and your consciousness is expanding and expanding and then there's... There's the symbolic death and resurrection, and then there's a moment of apotheosis. And that is taking in the, um, the characteristics of the divine, and then coming back out, like in the hero's journey, and then going back into the world. So what Meister Eckhart is saying in this quote is, is what, what this festival is all about is reminding ourselves that... Um, What's happening in this story is something that's really happening inside of ourselves. So in the handout that I gave you, um, you can take that and um, do with it what you will. What I did was summarize the story from the gospel, four gospel points of view. And very briefly it is. Mark, who is the first gospel written around 70, has no infancy narrative whatsoever. Matthew and Luke each have really interesting literary Midrashic stories about the birth of Jesus. So they're later, they're a couple decades later, right? So um, maybe they're responding to the question that you'd have. You know, where did this guy come from? I also made a note on your paper that uh, Bruce Chilton, our friend over at Bard, has a really interesting thesis and that is that Jesus may have been illegitimate. Maybe Mary had been raped by a, by a soldier, that was very common then, and that he had to contend with um, a reputation or of you know, where does he re- really belong if he's illegitimate? So maybe the infancy narratives are responding to that kind of buzz that's going around. Who knows? Um, but in any case, what Matthew and Luke are trying to do, and they're just filled with scripture references, I mean, they're just dripping with them. It's all playing, you know, literary play in um, biblical reference in these stories of um, trying to say something about who Jesus was. So Matthew's um, interest, as as our Matthew has told you, is is that he's writing within a Jewish community, and so very much his style is trying to um, place this storyline in the event of um, Jewish holy history, and um, so there's some notes on that on your paper. Luke is writing. Oh, and so you know, one obvious we were talking in the hall. Clunker is that Jesus' father is named Joseph, and Joseph is a dreamer, right? So where have you heard that before? And also, um, there's uh, in in Matthew's gospel in the infancy narrative. Um, Jesus and Mary and Joseph have to flee to Egypt because is, Herod is going to slaughter all the children. So there's references to Moses there. And, uh, and also out of Egypt, I've called my son. It's another big clunker that Matthew gives us. Um, so that's kind of Matthew's um, infancy narrative is from the point of view of Joseph. Now Luke was written from within a a, a more Gentile community, and I put this on your note too, is kind of interesting in that everything that's in the Gospel of Luke that's uniquely from Luke, that isn't borrowing from uh, Mark, there's a male and female pair. So if you have a story about a male, it's going to be followed by a female. If you have a story about a female, it's going to be followed by a male. So that's got an interesting balance that comes through in the Gospel of Luke. So you have the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah. is a priest. Elizabeth is barren, so bing, who's barren, right? So she's in this line of, oh, something's going to be with this birth, right, if she's barren and... Angel comes to him in the temple where he's serving as priest in the Holy of Holies. It's his turn. And um, Angel Gabriel tells him he's going to have a son. They do have a son. It's John the Baptist. There's the Annunciation to Mary.
1: Hey, what does Annunciation mean? Oh,
2: and the Announcing. Announcing. So Gabriel is announcing to Zechariah that they're going to have children. Zechariah says, uh, well, there's... Com- some problems with that and so the angel strikes him dumb because he argued (laughs) but he communicates somehow to elizabeth that this might be a happening thing and nine months later they have a baby so it was communicated (laughs) non-verbally
1: You got the picture
2: (laughs) she got the picture right he did and um so in luke's gospel he has it's not the magi that come visiting it's the shepherds so it's it's just, that's an interesting, more, uh, what is it, more humble. humble telling of the story. And, um, and there's other points that I, I put in your sheet there. If you're interested in kind of looking at the overview, and I also um, made the scripture references. So that looks, we looked at Matthew, Mark and Matthew and Luke, and then John's gospel is something completely different. Um, as Matthew has said, our Matthew has said, um, what John's Gospel does is present this metaphysical poem at the beginning, which I have printed out for you, Um, and you might want to take a look at that because what John is doing is placing the birth of the Christ as something it's not the birth of the Christ, it's something that was in the beginning, before all things came to be. Before all things came to be, and it's qualitative rather than temporal, and it begins in the beginning, which makes you think of Genesis, of course, but it's it's not chronological. It's, it's something that is being itself from before time. So that's what John gives us, and so what Christianity then has to deal with is this whole theological layering of the pre-existing logos, um, the, cosmological story. the co- cosmological story. So that's a summary of the four gospels, and that's behind the festival of Christmas. So Let that's all I have to say. Add yeah,
0: briefly to that. It stand up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I believe that Matthew's purpose was to try to show his fellow Jews that Jesus was the new Jerusalem. Remember, um, the Jesus movement and the rabbinic movement are vying for um, the identity of being the Jews. So this was a polemical situation, and Matthew was doing all he could to try to prove that Jesus was the new Jerusalem people of Israel. The new people it was Israel personified. So when you get his genealogy, he starts with Abraham. Luke, on the other hand, is much more interested not in making that tie, but in showing how Jesus um, is for the whole world, Gentiles as well. So he goes back to Adam in his genealogy to try to show that Jesus is for everyone.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: the other thing I wanted to say and then is...
1: John- Gets even more cosmic. Yes, he does. <laughs> John says that this is the intention of the universe, yes, as it were.
0: Yes, well said. And then the last thing was, I had read somewhere that it was the custom to, for great men, to um, make up a, an infancy narrative about them. Didn't you know, pagan Roman, whatever? It was just.
1: I cannot tell a lie, George Washington. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly.
0: Right. right. So, yeah, the two of the gospel writers were just, if this is true, following, you know, Jesus certainly is worthy of a birth narrative if that's what you do for great people. So we got those two, those two narratives. You can really see the two separate drives inside of them.
1: But at some point they get conflated or, or reduced into the story that... We hear on uh, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas or on, uh, in the creche.
0: the nativity
2: scenes. The nativity
1: yeah. scenes. When do you think that happens?
2: I, I just have to salute my mother here because uh, my mother, who is not a Christian, I mean, she, you know, but she would read the story to us from the Bible on Christmas Eve. But she would never mix the stories. So every year it was, "Do you want shepherds or kings?" But she would never mix them, <laughs> and that was the making of a scholar, you know, because she those stories are apart. So,
1: so when did those mom yay mom? So, but when do you think that I'm curious? Conflating. When do you think they started getting conflated into the narrative we're most familiar with? Any idea? With Macy's. Pardon me. <laughs> Pardon me? Well, I was going to make a joke because it seems
3: all a right, joke, but when, when there was
4: stores that could make, make a profit, so I said with Walmart. But oh, with Walmart, well, okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. So, but, uh, no, Joya,
1: Joya what, what do you, thi- well, what do you think happened?
4: Well,
5: it's a mythological thing. We've, we've always, in, this, in our group here, we have not made the difference between sign and symbol, and we've sort of... I've been trying to. I know, but I'm saying in this case, no, you have. Everybody's <laughs> talked about it. But the thing is that at different times it's not invo- it's not attached to history that's the trouble it's attached to the human psyche and the human kishkas and the human soul right therefore it comes out in different ways unenlightened people go and take it literally and then go kill everybody and people who are trying desperately to see the interior god or being right. try desperately to see it in everybody and say oh god we're one those people usually get killed, but that's what their message is. The message right. is a mystical message of oneness and of non-duality and of the symbol of what, for example, the creche means. Now, in the creche is right, so the creche, symbolic. The
1: creche is a symbol.
5: And it's so symbolic that it actually has very specific meanings, and at different times, the mystics knew it and wrote poems about it. For uh-huh. example, the the. I'm so excited about this, me. <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, for example, the Pesadif the Jews are Mary, the, the ones who follow the law and are trying to be really Jews within, this, within the law. That's Mary and Jesus. The shepherds, incredibly, are also Jews, of course everybody in the scene aside from the, the three Persians or wherever they come from are Jews so including the angels by the way <laughs> 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 anyway no, they're maybe more i don't know but the, so
1: the well they are Jewish angelology yes. in other words Gabriel that's right. Michael they, that's the yeah. Jewish
5: that's what i meant uh, yeah.
1: angel world
5: right yeah. that is the Jewish angel so there are the there are the shepherds they cannot follow the kosher laws exactly they cannot right. do what they're supposed to do. So they're really, what you call, you know how we call it, ref, what do we call them? They're, the
1: riffraff? They're,
5: well, they're outside the, the law. Oh,
1: you know? oh, okay, the, the, the God-fearers, the Yerah Hashem. Okay. And yet,
5: that's right, they're Eh But they are Jewish and also open-hearted and good people. And the angels say to them, You are in the right place, because now you can see that you're going to be part of this thing too, whatever. So they're part of it. So you see that. Then you see angels and humans. Now, angels are different from humans. Then you see babies, just born, and old people. Then you see a whole bunch of things that we could call opposites. And they are. If you ask children, what are the opposites in this scene that you're seeing, they'll tell you right away. Even in the fourth century. The donkey and the ox were opposites. They weren't just, but they also are real. Please don't think I'm being foolish. They are part of the real thing. That's the secret of the secret language. They never go away from reality. The so, secret language, they represent Egyptology. Seth and Osiris, the uh, great uh-huh. mystic of Seth and Osiris. That's the, the ox is Osiris, the, the Seth is the donkey. But it act- also
1: says in the Torah that you shall not yoke a donkey and an ox together mm-hmm. when you're plowing. Wow. So that motif is present also in, in Torah. Wow. Just wanted in you to know reality, that. In
5: reality, they're giving breath in this cold scene to this newborn child. But we all know that it has more meaning than that. But we've forgotten it. And it was only a mythologist who was a, a scholar who told me that. Mm-hmm. And he wrote it in a book. You know. Anyway... So you see all these opposites. Why? Why? It's all a Jewish scene, but a Jewish interior scene of opposites. Mm -hmm. Why? It's true that the Magi come, and remember, they come from the guy who is Jewish but belongs in the pocket of the Romans, Herod.
1: Herod sends the Magi? Yes.
5: Well, they stop there, and he tells them, he has heard that this is going to be the new king of the Jews, and Herod doesn't like this. What's going to happen to him and his sons and his family, so he says to himself, Oh, he says to them, "Come back and tell me where this place is that you found, because he's going to kill them." Okay, so look at how many circles you have around the story, and it's all within the Jewish realm. Okay, now what is the whole thing about the mystic view? And I, you know, you you take a toll when you tell the interior thing. It's not quite. It's only meant for us to discover. Not for somebody to tell you. I'm being stupid telling you. Believe me. It's not good. So it's only where you are you will receive it. I know what I've given, but I don't know what you've received. The same with me. I was ignorant. They tell me. You understand? So I'd say this humbly. What the center was was the baby born who was going to preach love of every opposite there is. Mm. And that's what he was there for. That the, that's what the later myth, the symbolists and mythologists understood, that this was to give love and to understand love. When a priest told me that we children were going to die because of sins, I went home to my grandmother, who, by the way, was once Jewish, but she didn't know it. But she's a Milano. Sicilian Milanos were all Jews at one time. And she said to me, "What did this priest tell you?" I said, no, no, That we children were going to burn." And and I don't know why. And she said, "Aspetta, figlia mia, tu ci credi no lo Do you believe in the baby Jesus?" I said, "Sì sì, io ci credo." She said, "Does the baby Jesus love you? Because all little children are loved by the baby Jesus. Sì sì, like Moses, right? It's a very important thing. we will, we were taught about Moses too, by the way. And it said, "Sì sì," I said, "He do me vol bene." Do you think anybody who loves you would do that to you? No. You must never listen to all things people say without it going through your heart. You must understand they're going to tell you everything in this world. Don't you believe it until you find out for yourself. And she freed me. Go grandma. Go grandma. She freed me from all that. So here you've got the scene. The baby, the mother, the father, the the dreamer, the practical, it goes on and on like that, including the three kings who are giving expensive gifts. There's no expensive gift to give this baby, but it's a symbol. But they do come with it, and they are foreigners, so you even have foreigners. My friend Diane Wolkstein said in Jewish stories, you've got to be wary, because she and I had this dialogue all our lives before she died, and she said to me, we believe in foreigners, Jews believe in the stranger. And she would show me in the story how and why. And I said, yes, I understand that. And she said, that's because it is part of our understanding. And here come in the foreigners to this Jewish scene. You see? And they're going to come to, and by the way, they have a dream. And the dream says, don't go back to Herod, because he's going to kill them all. And eventually he does. The, The innocents are killed. So that's the scene is putting it together and loving, and the baby who's gonna love everybody. And it's gonna be that compassion that is gonna be the story.
1: Thank you. Uh, oh, thank you. <laughs>
5: Forgive
1: me. I'm, no no forgiveness necessary. So I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say what I just heard in my words because that might be helpful also, which is that we, we human beings are wired to tell stories and wired to employ symbol systems, right? That's what that's what we do. And a story that's about our our lives, not not a not an article about uh, about you know um, a, the birth of a baby, but the stories that are about the birth of a baby, as a uh, new beginning, as this embodiment of hope, as the possibility under danger that new hope is always born, that the, the oneness of a baby's gaze at us, all of that. You know, you know who doesn't love a Babies, Babies represent that. So, so the stories in the gospel somehow, over centuries, get distilled into symbology and a, a, a sort of shared myth. We don't know exactly when, and the crash becomes that. And uh, uh, so I, uh, that's how, that is how it works. Um, yes
3: speak as loudly
1: as you can I I, I thank you for
3: sharing that, it was so beautiful and thank you all of you I would like to share the way I see it because I got that motivation (laughs) from being please do but the way I I, with all my respect to to all of this I really feel that the that the way that we can read it is understanding that it's actually making a story or a genealogy or giving us exactly the steps to realize that this is human living. It's all full of the human suffering and the human common events that every one of us, it doesn't matter if it's the king or the shepherd, all of us have this, as exactly as ourselves the way that we are and the way we experience life so to me which which i love and Nino, not the the storms but (laughs) the child and the virgin mary they are telling and saint joseph and all of them they are just telling us that this is not a divinity thing not a what not a divinity 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 It's not a deity makeup thing. It is taking out from us our situation in the middle of a war between Romans and all the other inhabitants of Jerusalem, a child, a woman, a father, the followers of Judaism and the synagogues and the doctors of the law, and everyone that was in that moment, in that situation, which is not different nothing have changed in our situation we are living here in the regular 2015 we're still experiencing the same suffering yes all over the world yes with everything persecutions abuses everything but here it is to every time i see a, a you know a baby or a christmas representation of the ox the bull or you know, the donkey and the and the parents, and the little baby, I feel exactly the same thing. Every time a child is born, no matter what is going on in our life, in the life of the world, it's continuous. It's the real start that life is continuation. Mm -hmm. It's always blessing us. (coughs) Thank you. And, And to me, those layers are not into the deities. Those layers are here in our everyday life.
1: Beautiful,
3: and and it is to us to use the beautiful historians, the beautiful artists, and storytellers to get it faster, according to our ages, like like you said, according to how old we get, how much we understand, and how many times we we see a child. You know, it, it bothers me when there are so many, so many things that take us away from from what I really believe in John, saying that it's the logos. It's us, it has, it's the air we breathe, is the words we speak, it's everything.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, So what I want to say about that is our assumption in this whole course we've been doing is that there is a human experience, and that that human experience does translate across cultures, but that every culture expresses that experience in the stories, symbols, and language of its culture. So that has been our working assumption. Jesse?
6: I'm curious about how we make the case that the quotes in Isaiah and Jeremiah actually refer to this person who comes later, Jesus. I mean, they, they refer to some prophet coming.
4: How, do we, how is the connection made?
1: Right. So as you may or may not know, When you read the Gospel of Matthew, especially, that's where I'm most familiar with this, it'll say, and this, it describes something that happened, and it says, and this was in fulfillment of what Isaiah said, or this was in fulfillment.
4: You just midrash.
1: Well, the point, you you say it. Uh, Again, now, we are talking, and this is important to repeat, a million times in the context of a Jewish culture where that is how you made your point. You needed a proof text. That is the Jewish way. That's how we do it. We, even if we make the most out there, radical, uh, in, in rabbinic times and today, what makes it a part of a Jewish conversation is that you say, as it says in the Torah. And then you're welcome to cherry pick. right? That's, the, that's, basically, the, that's basically the way we do it. But, even you, but but in order to have it be part of the Jewish conversation, you need to ground it in scripture. That's the way it works. So no, there's, there's no way to... That's their interpretation. uh, But when you read the actual text of Isaiah or of Jeremiah that are predicting something, there is no evidence in that text that is predicting the birth of Jesus. Right? That it just, you can't prove it. Um, Now, in the context, one more thing. One more thing, if you hold on. In the context of that time, that's sermonic material, right? Later, in the, all the conversations I've had with people who want to prove to me that Jesus is the, you know, the, the Christians over the years who want to prove to me that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture, they have taken it to a, in a whole different direction that I don't think was the intention at the time. Susan.
0: And I just wanted to add that <clears throat> um, if you go back to what Matthew refers to and you really dig into the, to that story, it enriches so much. What's being referred to in the Jesus story?
1: Yes. Uh, so I It's not
0: just a link, in other words. No, it's not, like not it just a link. It, it,
1: it's, it's more like a hyperlink, where it okay. takes you from this line of story, now go back to this and read that whole chapter, right. and whole it, it's totally in, informed and invested what you're reading now in Matthew.
2: It's musical. It's like a musical leitmotif or something, you know, all those hyperlinks. It so sets you- this whole... Um, environment.
1: Right. Uh, I, have, I had photocopied for all of us, but we didn't get a chance to do it. Uh, just a second, Stu. Um, I photocopied uh, for all of us the first few chapters of Matthew just to read together and then to follow those links. I think that's something we should do in the future.
5: It has to do with time. Also, we conflate time by doing that. So there we say God is forever, God is eternal, God is ineffable, and look, some of our people saw it there, some of our people see it now, some of our people see it here.
1: And the point that, is, in these readings, t- the time is linear. Time is not and yes. is not at issue here. Right. The eternal now is at issue. That's it. And that's again, that's an issue. That's something that is not problematic for first century Jews that we get confused about because we are so invested and committed to linear thinking. Stu, and then Susan. Yeah,
4: when, when, we, do, when we look at things in scripture and we use as a proof text for the idea we're going, for instance, Abraham runs when the three uh, people are there, what happens? Well, there is many, many stories about that, and it's called Midrash. Same thing when you say Isaiah said this, oh, that's a midrash, he was doing that. But in Judaism, the midrash is not true. It's not, it's not what would you it, call it? Um, it? It's not that it's not, 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 not true. It's, it's
1: a reading of the story.
4: There are conflicting midrash that would tell you the entire different thing. And
1: I'm going to repeat that in that time period, having conflicting interpretations was not a problem because right. they weren't playing the game right. of finding it, the They were expanding. They weren't, they weren't playing with temporal time. They weren't playing with logical proofs. They were playing with expanding our spiritual understanding of what's going on. Right. Does that make sense, everybody? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Susan, we're, in history, we're the ones who are kind of disabled. Right. In that regard, and we have to continually move ourselves past that to, to try to to you know we our literalism is a problem. Yes.
7: So for me, a modern phenomenon is the hologram. I'm not sure there was ho- or they called it a hologram there, but it all all of this seems like part of a hologram. We have different ways of interpreting it and talking about it. Is it mystical? Is it historical? Is it this? Is it that? To me, it's the when you said this burst, that to me is all part of the whole. In any little part of it, seems part of a big whole, and the big whole, a W H O L E, is um is something that I can identify with in many different parts of my brain. I can do it in my heart and mystically. I can do it through a story historically. I can do it through archetypes. I can do it through what I see around me. But it all seems part of that. I don't even know how to talk about that. But the word hologram seems Mm -hmm. to...
1: So I'll say again that uh, uh, when we learned from... Who was it in the class who says they started a story by saying, when they do storytelling, they say, once upon a time. Hmm. When was that time? When was not that Right. Now you're in story.
7: in a different right. state of consciousness.
1: It's so important to hear that. When was that time? When was not that time? And then all of a sudden, that time is right now. Yeah. Right. Okay, so, Jay? I
8: think in, in one of these lines that you handed out on the John the Gospel, the very bottom, and maybe it fits in and maybe not, but if you could comment on it. It says here, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. What number? Hold on.
1: Uh, People wanted to know what verse that was. Are the verses numbered?
8: Yes. Yes. It's three lines from, four lines from the bottom. Well, this should have a number next to it. Fifteen. 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 So just that one quote says, just just to paraphrase, (laughs) he who comes after me, um, he who comes after me, he was before me. Ranks ahead of me because right, he was before me. I'm just skipping that middle, but you know, it's basically saying, he who comes before me, he who comes after me was before me. So, this is a, I think this reinforces, it's a very confusing statement. I thought like <laughs> you,
2: you could just comment on it. Yeah, I could comment on it. This, this, is, this is John the Baptist speaking, and he's saying, and, and John the Baptist is the forerunner, he's the one introducing Jesus, right? But consistent with the point that is going on in the prologue of John, John's point there, uh, John the Baptist is taking this up and saying, yeah, well, the one that's coming after me, Jesus, is the one that's out from the cosmos is being unfolded through the cosmos Mm -hmm. in the cosmos story. So Mm -hmm. he's just underlying what, what was happening earlier in that poem.
1: Thank you. So now I want, yes, Martha.
0: Um, well, I have one little question and one larger question. I don't know what a Christmas antiphon,
7: antiphon oh, I'm is. Oh, sorry. It's
2: just, it's one of the, um, when we pray our prayers, yeah. um, like before the psalm, there'll be a, a little a sentence. a pre a, oh, a preface
1: a, a pre a foreword yeah, and t is before and, and phone is word
0: oh very good
2: it's okay a so word. there's lovely lovely ones for all year and round this is but there's one, lovely this lovely, the lovely actual ones for sentence Christmas. that you might say that you might say right and then okay. you lead into the reading so okay, we I... say that and it, it's before one of the psalms that we say okay it's thank you morning. okay my bigger question is um, we have a baby without having
0: considered the virgin birth, and I wonder if you could say something about that and might have something to yeah. do with
1: Please do. Okay. Virgin birth, not in the realm of, of biological possibility, right, we're yeah. in the realm of story. A baby was born.
2: Yeah, so virgin birth. Um, in the top of your sheet on the first page, there's a note. And it's referring to the Septuagint, which was the Greek, the Koine Greek translation of the Bible, actually, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. And so the communities where these stories were coming from were using that version of the Bible, and so they were reading from Isaiah, um, and a instead of. Look, on, the, on the sheet, it actually says...
1: Do you need a copy? or oh, you have to.
2: Um, yeah. Okay, so how do you say that? Uh, Ha'alma. Ha'alma. Ha-al-ma. Um, young woman. In, in, the, in the Septuagint, it was translated as He Parthenos, the virgin. So in everybody's head is that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. <coughs> And so they just went with that, <laughs> but it's the same, you know. It's so it comes out of part of the worry about the origin of Jesus, right? Um, was he illegitimate? Like, like maybe there was the buzz about him being illegitimate. Um, was what is the nature of Jesus? I mean, this doesn't. In the first gospel, it's not even, you know, it just doesn't even arise. But um, so, in other words, how could
1: Jesus be a son of God?
2: Right. So the worry, I mean, the time you would spend worrying about the virgin birth would be about the same amount of time you'd want to worry about Sarah conceiving Isaac when she was 90. You know, it's kind of.
4: Well, that's how I
1: feel about them whole yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's <coughs> how it mean, but, the- but having said that, Suzanne, having said that, Suzanne, uh, it, it becomes so central to the story that it must represent something besides uh. theology uh, to, as in that symbol system we're talking about. Yeah. Joya, have yeah, you yes. thought about this? it
5: represents this? the three goddesses because there we are again with the Greek. I've been teaching Greek mythology uh, the last 40 years or something, and the Greeks are so attached to the young woman, the young, the Koros, the beginning, the one who's before marriage. And that is the moon as it's it's just beginning. Then there's the full one, the mother. And that is a whole other thing attached to which goddesses are they. And then comes the crone, which we have abandoned in our culture, but the old ones. I
2: beg your pardon.
5: (laughs) 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 Anyway, but that is the, so you have here the uh, the idea that when a woman is not, again, we're in the unified world, not the divided one, right. she is whole unto herself.
1: Right. The moon is the moon is the moon.
5: The moon, and that's all three of the moon, and yet the young one is whole unto herself, which is what the virgin young one meant yes. to be whole unto and herself. herself. Uh, yes. And that then gave the people who wanted to deal with that. A kind of extra, but they forgot what it came from and right. what it meant, uh-huh. but it's yeah. there.
1: So that means you're saying it turned into a, a mind game? Yes, and it's and not
5: a mind game. It has a whole mm-hmm. thing to do with the symbol of the young to the mature to the waning. So and I it's think real. It's,
1: just a second. So I think it's worth acknowledging the amount of uh, ink and blood spilled <laughs> yeah. uh, over. Yes. People trying to yes. uh, prove that their literal. their their um, uh, a literal interpretation had to be the one, right? We know that this is a big problem with human beings. Okay, uh, so but I think it deserves bears mentioning rather than just try to jump right over it. To isn't this marvelous? Which it is. Uh, That's
5: why you have Aphrodite, who goes in my mother's town, which was in Sicily, filled with Jews. Christians and Muslims, where was the Aphrodite? They were Greek before they were, those three. That place where the women went for the mikveh, guess what it was? Aphrodite's well, Mm. where you go back to become whole again. Ah. A woman bathes in that. Mm. Aphrodite. She's not just sexual. She's also transcendent about art and beauty and passion in another non-material way. But nobody goes to that either in the Greek. But there she is, and there is the literal thing, the mikveh and the understanding through the ages of what it means to for a woman and for anything that is maybe out to become one again. To
1: be Here. reintegrated.
5: And you're also now on a different level. I'll different recognize,
1: path. I'm going to recognize people in order, but I want to say, so mikveh is the Hebrew word for the Jewish ritual bath.
5: Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that.
1: Um, not everyone necessarily knows that. Oh. So be- John the Baptist... Baptism means immersion in the mikveh. John the Baptist was John the mikveh man. Okay? Yochanan. His name was Yochanan. Yochanan the mikveh man. That's what John the Baptist means because this is such an important part of Judaism. The Torah, the book of Leviticus in particular, is filled with instructions for when you have become, as it were, fractured or you've lost your integrity whether through skin disease or through childbirth or through, and you have to go into the mikvah in order to be reintegrated into the community so it is a res- restoration of wholeness or born again right? Mm-hmm. all of that is part of the Jewish context that was also part of the Greek context so now, Stu and Susan and
4: Barbara if you remember high school biology and no. parthenogenesis about yeah. the frogs? Yeah. yeah, I was thinking about That's that. where that comes from. However, the word Alma is used in other contexts where the woman is pregnant and she is not a virgin. So the Alma gets translated into the, the Greek as parthenos, which then becomes, because their viewpoint is, this is without, without sin or without... Without
1: sin, without blemish, yeah. well, you know, whole, more whole than could possibly be whole. Okay, thank you. Yes.
9: Uh, well, I I remember reading that in uh, in the Greek in ancient Greece the temple virgins were um, women who actually initiated people into sexuality. So it actually meant the woman who the unmarried woman, the woman who belonged to herself. But it didn't mean the non-sexual woman, Um, so uh, you know we our culture has taken it to mean something else. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think in the context of this whole story, uh, calling Mm -hmm. Mary a virgin uh, implies that um, a certain mystical, like she was a a very (laughs) exalted person. Yeah. A vessel. Yeah, a vessel for. God in some way. Beautiful. And it didn't mean, you know, uh, that she hadn't conceived him, you know, the way everybody conceives a child, but more that it was a spiritual concept. Yeah, well, oh. one of the
2: issues about the figuring out Jesus was what was the relationship with divine and human. And so it was a storytelling way also to, to maybe present the idea that Jesus was both divine and both human. Mm -hmm.
1: Also, yes, and then Karen. Mm -hmm.
2: On an interior level, you had spoken about Meister Eckhart, Mm -hmm. how we are to be the Mary and where then Christ can be born in us. So virgin can also mean how pure or undivided, meaning how whole, how open, how innocent are we so that Christ so being the annual of God with us can be so present within us. So that's a whole other
1: nicely put. mystical aspect. Nicely put. Thank you. Uh, Karen?
10: Um, Suzanne, I just want to clarify on your sheet, under your um, little section of the genealogy on the Matthews narrative. You speak of Tamar. Is this the Genesis Tamar? Yes, this yes. is the Genesis, the so mother mean, of came, Judah. Not mother of Judah, actually. The, the consort. Oh, that's right. That's daughter. right. The consort and of She's really, mother of Perez and. Um, parrots and. I think, that, I think that's essential to this yeah. because that's a motif,
3: going back to Genesis of uh, this female who is whole unto herself. <laughs> uh,
1: can can I say something about yeah. that? Um, so when do we have the whole lineage here? Where. Is,
9: no, I just it's mentioned. Includes women. four women. It's yeah, it right includes tomorrow. four women.
1: Where does it say that?
9: right by Matthew. Where Matthew oh, okay. Was
1: the yes. Technology. Okay, so keep track here. This, is gonna, this would be a fascinating discussion, which I want to have in the future, because for some reason, in Matthew's infancy narrative, uh, going for the lineage of Jesus, he mentions Tamar, who has to uh, basically uh, uh, deceive her father-in-law. To earn her rights to have a child, the children she has, Peric becomes the uh, the, the grand great grandfather of David. King David. Ruth, who has to essentially, not exactly deceive, but use her strength and her wiles in order to claim uh, a husband, uh, Boaz. And Ruth is the other great grandmother, the great grandmother of King David. Rahab, Rahab is a prostitute. In Jericho, who helps Joshua's spies when they come over? Uh, So there's some, and then uh, wife of Uriah. That's Bathsheba. Mm -hmm. David spots Bathsheba bathing on the roof, and has an affair with her. So these are all examples of not the way it's supposed to be. And yet, when you read the whole biblical narrative. How does Sarah have a baby? You know, how does, uh, um, there are so many examples of um, uh, people who aren't supposed to give birth or in the way things should be, and yet there's a new birth. And so again, in terms of people in the first century for whom the Bible was their context for living, they would seek out the stories in the Bible that would reinforce their sense of something new, unprecedented, and that involves women being empowered also. Uh, there's so many aspects to this. So that's why the more we talk, the more I want to study the first few chapters of Matthew with you so that we can look back at all the biblical references and see how, what, how, how incredibly Jewish a um, document it is. Is that, is that speaking to, do you want to say more?
10: Well, there was one part of it I really wanted to um point out Tamar as a progenitor let's say of that motif of a woman holding herself who in a sense in, in the official way has a virgin birth because Judah is not her husband and the, the that's right the, the coupling of them is unofficial mm-hmm. and so her children then the sons become and they're twins which is another another motif motif <laughs> Um, are of that category. And I also just want to mention, since Judah is mentioned there, that to me, you know, the Judah, um, this, the relationship of, since, let's bring Hanukkah back into our story. Well, I was just heading there. Uh, Judah Maccabee, um, to me, the name Judah Maccabee, the story of Judah and Tamar and the whole um, story cycle of Judah, which we're right in the middle of, is the, um, the bookends of the whole festival of Hanukkah. And it's essential to understanding Hanukkah, I think, to then also be, as we're telling the story of the story of Judah and the um, empowering, sort of the, the power that Judah uh, takes on. And then Judah Maccabee as a later ancestor related by name, not necessarily a genealogy mm-hmm. that's um, generations, but definitely I think that the name Judah Maccabee with the Judah of Genesis is intentional, to then uh, celebrate as the rededication of the temple, built by David, the actual genealogical son of the biblical Jews. Thank you. Let okay. me
1: turn. I, I'd, oh, OK. I'd like to turn to Hanukkah now. Uh, but Bob?
4: Well,
6: I don't know quite how to ask this. So it'll take me a minute. OK. Um, I'm learning something new here about Christianity and about the relationship of us as Jews to the Christians. And the translation of the virgin from the Greek word is interesting and helpful. Now, that's having that said, I would like to know, uh, I grew up in a Gentile neighborhood. My best friends were Gentile, even though I was bar mitzvah and all that. I went to an excellent liberal arts school where we had compulsory chapel. So I had four years of compulsory chapel with more cuts each. As you got to be a senior, you had four cuts. So I consider myself reasonably uh, assimilated into the American culture. I thought I knew something about Uh, Christianity or the others and I haven't heard anything today which helps me understand why all this elaborate interpretation of wholeness that the Virgin means a wholeness has escaped me for 87 years (laughs) so the culture in the United States that I know Talks about the miracle of a virgin who means she didn't have intercourse, so she had a miracle. Now, that's the Christianity I heard about. <laughs> I didn't hear these other stories or interpretations about holiness. So I can't, that's not a question, I guess. Mm. But no, that was, that's was great. great. That's it's great. A good great. great.
11: Yeah. Can I you want to address that? I grew up in that Christianity. And my understanding is that the virgin birth wasn't required as a belief to a car carrying Catholic until around the time I was born. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, it was a tradition. And you have to remember that the whole Catholic thing came up through imperialism and was started with, it, it was part of the Roman patriarchy. Right. And so having a virgin daughter was really important. Uh, and giving over a virgin to a man who was going to be her husband was really important. So all of these things were happening. Then, then you go move into the dark, dark ages, medieval times. And these, these are stories, traditions that, looking at it, what is it, the troubadours, courtly love. You know, where you could love from afar, but it was not really afar because you always had one of the priests going, trying to make, but this whole idea of have a woman being a virgin in a patriarchal mm-hmm. society was, was a big deal. And then my roots, Irish Catholic, Sicilian Catholic, was not, okay. <laughs> bringing all of this into it, the story was yes, that she was a virgin, and you should be too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. I want to hear
1: uh, Suzanne or yeah. Susan. Yeah. Do you that's also have a response good. to what she Bob? That was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> a miracle, the miracle, a virgin gave birth. So that's the American Christianity that he grew up go- with, going to chapel. Do you two want to reflect on that a little, or just? Uh?
0: Um, Bob, my thinking is that. Um, we, we all start out taking the story at the level of history of just the way it's told, and that's that. And then it's a process of um, what Suzanne was saying earlier, and Joya, that we, you know, if it isn't happening to me and happening now.
6: But why is that? Aspect of belief and Christianity. Because most Christians don't. 80, most Christians
0: years. don't take that next step. They believe really it. Leave but it as No
6: one I know has discussed Just that with me, clear. and I've not led an isolated life. No one until this class has discussed the things. That How you're many discussing?
0: Christians here do have discussions where this comes up?
3: well I remember well there. I remember very much um, learning around the, the time we were supposed to be a continue being would be a temptation not to be a burden that we had um, some like around 15 years old
6: I can't hear I'm sorry
3: okay there. It does it. That was the preface to <laughs> Okay. Okay. Very scholarly Catholic priests and very intelligent, which are the Jesuits, came and taught us that the important thing was not the fact that Mary was taken as the greatest woman on earth up till today and this is back in 1968, so you have changed, is that she is virgin because she is humble. Mm-hmm. She was able to say, Oh, magnificent, I am made of the Lord. And that was, m- was missing from a lot of the scriptures. So that made her be the great, mother and mirables admirables, and that is what meant meant to be virgin. <coughs> of course, the great scholar of the Jesuit could, could understand that when you are 15 and you listen to that, and then you will be married by the age that you are 18 really. or 25, he didn't not want to us to feel bad for not being virgins anymore. Because when you are like 25 and you realize, oh, I'm not the maiden of the Lord because I'm not biolo- biological virgin. It's ridiculous. So here it is: the answer in a very spiritual way is the humbleness. The okay. Humbleness.
1: So Bob, uh, you've raised the question. We're not going to be able to answer it.
4: No, but that wasn't my point. <laughs> I understand that. Okay.
1: I understand that.
4: Yeah, but it do you seems.
5: I'm making
6: a comment about the culture in general that i lived through and the culture in general. And I even lived in a theological seminary for four years, and we had lots of religious discussions. I have not heard this discussion before. Okay, I'm
1: going to speculate.
6: It's wonderful.
1: I'm going to speculate that the resurgence of general interest in spiritual and mystical understanding of our sacred stories is a product of the 1960s forward. Same with the interest in Jewish mysticism. There's no way you would have heard the kinds of interpretations I give, which I'm not making up. They're in the tradition before the 1970s in common circles. You might have heard them in esoteric conversations, but not (laughs) even in a common uh, seminarian setting i think i think i'm going to speculate i think this is a product of the, sh- of, the of the pendulum of, of sort of so, that pendulum swinging so that we are now in more interested in these levels of interpretation as 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 sort of public religion that's yes
6: clearly there's interest here yes in what we're doing
1: yes and these interpretations which we're not making up have been there all along in Christian mystical and Jewish mystical texts, but there was a lack of interest prior to this, I think. Uh, I, I hope that's a little bit helpful. Um,
6: At least it puts something in perspective. That's,
1: that's my guess about perspective, given that I didn't grow up in a Judaism that presented the uh, interpretations I know about that I only learned when I was uh, a young adult and, and was able to find teachers who had uh, um, excavated these teachings from, from, from the Jewish uh, tradition. Maybe. How now, about Hanukkah? I, and... Yeah, so I'm going to ask that we don't, uh, that I'm going to change subject for a minute, for a while. Uh, but thank you, Bob. So Hanukkah, let's talk about Hanukkah a little bit. Uh, and let me just flag a couple of interesting features that Hanukkah and Christmas have in common. One is that Hanukkah always falls on the 25th of the lunar month of Kislev in the Jewish calendar. Did you hear that? Twenty-five. Yeah, uh, the twenty-fifth of December, as the day of Christmas. That for me somehow that's not accidental. When you look, and I'm just look reading encyclopedia articles, but uh, there was in the the biggest festival of the Roman Empire year was Saturnalia, which took place for eight days from the seventeenth of December to the twenty through the twenty fourth of December. It's,
5: 12, it's actually twelve days to Saturn and Alps the, the
4: feast Okay.
1: So involved. anyway, and this was like Eight a huge festival. Roman festival, um, which was which involved candles, which involved lighting lighting torches and candles, which involved um, um, uh, festi- great festivities.
0: And inv- involved
5: giving gifts.
1: And it involved giving gifts. Topsy And it also involved gambling.
5: Everything different, topsy-turvy. It's the time between this year and that year. Right. The
1: slaves were allowed to act out (laughs) during this week. Um, It was the big, best, big big thing. So, um, Saturnalia. The
5: feast of Saturn and his wife, Ops. The feast
1: of Saturn and his wife, wife Ops. Old, old mythology. So, um, thanks, Bob. I have to go. I know, I know. Um, so if you want to sort of the thumbnail of uh, the 12 days of Christmas or the eight days of Hanukkah or the fact that um, Hanukkah kids are allowed to gamble or the fact that we light lights or, or, or it was part of the world of that time. Or or is light in Hebrew, that's right. Uh, it was part of the world. So when we talk about which came first or what, da, 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 da. it's all emerging as different cultures make their solstice festival meaningful in their cultural idiom and languages. Um, Christmas, when it, it, for Christians, as it becomes its own religion uh, and is no longer, even though we've looked carefully and will continue to look at the incredible grounding in Judaism that Christianity emerges from, uh, Christmas becomes their winter solstice festival. Make uh, Hanukkah the origins of Hanukkah we actually know a lot historically it's unusual but Hanukkah we can date we can date when it was instituted um, we have these books called the books of Maccabees 1 and 2 which are roughly contemporaneous accounts of the successful revolt of the Hasmonean uh, uh, um, uh, regime, regime against uh, Antiochus uh, Epiphanes the head of uh, one, um, which part of the which empire
4: was it? Seleucid the Greek.
1: Seleucid Greek Empire in the year 167 BCE so we actually know this and we also know it from uh, as Bob would lo- well, will show us one day uh, historical evidence we have coins uh, that have coined minted by the Maccabees that have the dates and the symbols on them. This is like this is historically verifiable stuff. Um, the story that gets told about it is not necessarily historically accurate. Now, interesting. So, but let me let me let me. So, there are so many true stories of Hanukkah. I was reading a great column by a, a Jewish Jewish teacher and writer today, saying, you know that she had she had planned to give a talk called the true story of hanukkah and then she realized she had to tell a different story for each era of jewish history because the story's been told differently throughout history based picking out so what is an historical event becomes a story right its meaning its richness is in the story we tell about it the historical events are very eye opening and it would be yes nathan Oh yeah, we were singing this weekend. The things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. Um, uh, So, the the what I'd say if I was trying to be an historian, uh, we can tell we can we know a lot about what was happening then, and and uh, based on what we know about human nature in general, uh, it was a time period where Jews were rapidly assimilating into Greek life. Right? Greek culture was the greatest import. You know, it's like Greek culture had spread all over the ancient Near East, all over the Mediterranean. And Jews were into it. Right? And uh, it was high culture. And uh, the, this was an ongoing process. Um, Jews were Greek speaking. Um, they started dressing in Greek clothes. They started giving themselves Greek names. Um, and uh, even the high priest in the temple had a Greek name. And uh, the problem was, it appears, that, Antioch, that there was great conflict within this little province of Judea about how Greek to be. Right? And uh, it came to a head when Antiochus, who appears to have been psychotic, um, uh, started insisting that they bow down to statues of him, that they start... He, they, he made it impossible for even impossible for even the moderate, what we call Hellenizing Jews, to continue to live with Greek culture, because he was clearly tra- he was crossing too many lines and making it impossible for them to continue to feel like they could pursue the practice of their ancestral ways. And a rebellion started, more likely a civil war between the Greek sympathizers. And lots of other Jews who were Greek sympathizers who uh, couldn't take it anymore, as it were. And they were led by a house, uh, by a family of Kohanim, that means priests, who didn't live in Jerusalem. In other words, they weren't the ensconced powers in Jerusalem. They were in an outlying town called Modin, uh, um, just a short train ride from Jerusalem today. And, uh, and Mattathias, that's Greek. His name was Matityahu in Hebrew, Matthew in English, right? Was the father uh, who uh, of of this family who essentially started a a rebellion. From they were country folk. They didn't like what they saw going on in the big city, and they didn't want their their ancestors' ways to be uh, uh, to be uh, eliminated. A rebellion lasted three years. They succeeded. Usually these rebellions succeed because the uh, the emperor is preoccupied with another front, you know. But I'm not doing a whole history lesson. They succeeded, and they actually rededicated the temple. When you read the books of Maccabees, there's no story about the light lasting for eight days. Just to be clear, the the most the earliest sources we have, which are almost contemporaneous with the events, have no miracle story in them. That shouldn't be such a big surprise, actually, right? There's miracles. There's, that stuff comes later. Look at the, look at the Gospels. Uh, 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 Mark, the earliest, it's what's the story in Mark? It
0: starts with baptism.
1: No, no infancy narrative in Mark, OK? It comes later. Jay, do you want to? No. Oh, OK. Sorry. OK. I'm holding up my head. I'm <laughs> glad, Lena. Um, <laughs> So in the earliest sources, no miracle story. However, it says that, do you know the big festival in Judaism, the big eight-day festival, Sukkot, the fall harvest festival, even more important in ancient Israel than Passover in many ways, because it was, it was, the, it was the big, giant festival at the end of the harvest season before the rainy season and people would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and they would light torches, and they would rededicate the temple. Be- it says in the books of Maccabees that because they had not gained secured Jerusalem yet by that time, they, the, the, um, the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees, declared that that year, Sukkot would take place in the end of Kislev, two months late. Right? That's the story in the book of Maccabees. And that it was actually a delayed festival for rededicating the temple that happened every year that couldn't happen that year because they, were, they hadn't secured the temple. That appears to be a plausible historical account. What's not, exact, what's not talked about in the book of Maccabees is they chose the 25th of Kislev. In other words, they may have chosen to rededicate the temple, at the time of Saturnalia. Do you understand? Because it's in the air, right? It's okay. part of what's going on. And then the, the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, declared that this would be a festival henceforth. Called, and, they, and it wasn't called Hanukkah in the book of Maccabees. It was called the Festival of Lights. It didn't have named Hanukkah yet. Nate? It was
4: interesting that when they discovered the lost tribe of Ethiopians, the Ethiopians didn't know about
1: Hanukkah. Right. The Ethiopian Jews were cut off for so long from the rest of the Jewish world with only occasional, you know, a report by Benjamin of Tudela in the 1300s that he, in his world travels, he'd come across this band of Jews in Africa, right? But they were like, somehow, they managed to sustain their own version of Judaism. They were cut off for so long that they don't actually celebrate post-biblical holidays. Hanukkah, they never integrated Hanukkah into their practice because, it never landed on them. Wow. Uh, A part of the miracle of the Ethiopian Jews is that they continued to retain their identity. Because they also, the Ethiopian Jews, didn't ha- don't have rabbis. They have priests. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Priests meaning, not Christian priests, priests that. meaning kohanim. Oh, right. right. So that's how long ago the Ethiopian Jews uh, basically lost cultural interaction with the rest of the Jewish world that has only been restored in the last uh, 40 years or so. Um, Thank you. Yeah, they don't celebrate Hanukkah. So, uh, my point is that even the name Hanukkah isn't in the immediate source. And uh, I'm going to... Yes, Michael.
4: I just want to say something else. The the 25th of Kislev might have been chosen because the symbolism, the 25th is the end of a, a waning month. The moon is getting smaller and smaller, then it goes dark. Yes. And then the next moon begins. Right. So the symbolism of the diminution of the light a time of darkness and then a rededication of the light may have served perfectly well. That's right. Lunar
1: calendars uh, predate solar calendars, I think, in this case. They do. And the Jewish lunar calendar, uh, forgive me if you've heard me say this many times, the 25th of Kislev means that the moon is almost done waning and is rising at about 3 in the morning. So that means when the sun goes down on the 25th of Kislev, it's really dark and, it's the, and the 25th of Kislev is the time the of the dark moon closest to the solar, to the solstice. So Hanukkah always falls on the darkest, longest night um, closest to the solstice. So in other words, December 21st could have a full moon, right? Yes. right? So it's not the darkest night of the year. Hanukkah guarantees that these are the longest and darkest nights of the year, and that's the lunar solar calendar of the Jewish people. Um, so I'm glad Michael brought that up. So it, it makes sense. And that also by the eighth day of Hanukkah, the moon is now, we're into the third day of the new month. There's a nice crescent moon, and you've lit eight candles uh, so that there's a blaze, you know. This is the ancient impulse to, to bring light into the darkest time of the year and also sympathetically to summon the return of the light. All of that. Yes, Anne.
11: I was just going to
7: point out that the, num- the 25th is the number 7.
1: 2 plus 5. Right. Thank you.
5: <laughs> Thank you. Yes, Joya. The uh, uh, solstice, meaning the stopping still of the sun, Is that what solstice means? That's what solstice means. And actually, if you do an experiment that a friend of mine in the 60s who was a conceptual artist did, he checked uh, on the day the light coming in, uh, the days prior to the solstice. And the light is always moving. The sun moves. And we, as people, all people in the world, felt happy that the sun was going to continue. On the solstice. It appears to stand still.
1: Because it's reached its
5: apex. apex. And guess what day it moves again? The 25th. And that's why they made the 25th the, the, the birth of Jesus, and I'm sure understood science. And under, well you know well everybody was
1: watching signs. the skies you know yes. that's what you could do. we we are like we have 500 it. channels but they were watching the night sky
5: but they really were whole with nature they really saw yes. it. Yes. they really cared yes so that was very frightening that it was not looking as if it was moving and when it started to move they all said hallelujah in whatever line oh in whatever right place,
1: so the, mid, they the they midrash want. about that in jewish sources is about adam that what that as the first uh, well, there's a story about Adam about the first nightfall that he thought the sun had disappeared, there you go. and he was terrified. Uh, and that the next day when the sun rose, he started to understand. And then there's another story about Adam in the Jewish teachings about the first solstice and the sense that the day was going to keep receding until it was gone. He'd never experienced it before, and then it started coming back, and he rejoiced. Uh, so uh, that's a Jewish version of that story. Thank you. Uh, Karen, correct me if I'm
10: So my understanding of Christ then is Christ is the light. Right. So we are in Christ. We are no longer dependent purely on our, uh, you know, uh, empirical experience. Mm-hmm. That now we have this this consciousness of the light that emerges, and it doesn't matter as much that we're lighting candles, and it doesn't matter as much that. Mm-hmm. that the actual moon is changing where it is, but now we understand the light, and, and we bring the light in through our own, um, <coughs> let's say, identifying with, with that Christ consciousness. Is that... Is that? Uh, you know, I'm speaking as a Jewish, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I
2: think, well, that's beautiful. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think that two things. One is that I think, very consciously, c- Christmas was celebrated at Saturnalia. There was already parties going on, and you know, so party when it's time to party, and um, and the solstice, as the darkest time of the year, became a teaching tool. Mm-hmm. Christ is the light coming in when it's most needed in the darkest time, and as the the church calendar began to develop, um, John the Baptist. His nativity is observed at the summer solstice. Oh, really? Yeah, so John the Baptist says June he must increase and I must decrease. So it kind of it goes like this. Right.
1: right.
9: That's
2: really amazing.
4: Yeah, right,
1: and, so- uh, and I understand that nine months before December 25th, March 25th, I was reading about that too as uh, yeah. part of that. Holy calendar. Right, right.
2: It's all, it's all. It's all, it's all all Susan, just just a minute. Just
1: just a minute. I I just need need to read something based on what Karen said. Okay? No, no, no. Listen to this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So that's the that's how the, book, the Gospel of John begins. Does that sound familiar from the Hanukkah story? Just take those, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. That's the Maccabee story we tell. So I'm just pointing out, uh, you know, that, and, and in terms of what that light is, it's, it's not the light of the sun returning. The light of the sun is then used as a metaphor for our human experience—that there is an inner light that will not be quenched by darkness. Okay, uh, I know you both want to say something, and then I'll continue. I think
4: just the question. Um, I gotta say. The, yes. You will. There's a story of that. Eight days later, was Jesus was circumcised. Is there any? What what is the? Uh, foundation of that? And does it occur on New Year's Day? No.
2: Oh yeah, we celebrate it on New Year's Day.
4: New Year's Day. The circum- and it is circumcision. the circumcision of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Circumcision right, of Jesus. the 25th, the first day.
1: 26th, 27th, 28th, 29, 30, 31st. The first is the 8th day. It's customary to circumcise on the, at, as early as you can on the 8th day. That's the tradition. So what is does that have a name? Yes,
2: the Feast, the Feast of the, the Circumcision. The Feast of the
1: Circumcision, January 1st. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay, that's deep. Sorry, Susan's ready, then you, Jen. Okay.
7: So I want to go back to the dark and the light. I, I Isn't it ironic
1: that you're talking about the Feast of Circumcision when Christians then eventually don't <laughs> circumcise it? So just, uh.
7: It
5: really is mind-blowing,
7: Well, and then there's the thing about eating the foreskin, but I won't go there. The, we have such a that. preference... Of light over darkness. Yes. And so I I like to flip it that it would also be a very interesting thing to see that the darkness comes to unenlighten the light. Hello. That there's something in the <laughs> darkness that we we have a, we don't have a preference for. Talk to Clark Strand. He's yeah, yeah, yeah. But it it's so necessary. I mean, imagine a baby in a womb is in darkness.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
7: Right. That's where birth. You need what gets in a lotus. Where is it? It's all in the mud. All the good stuff is in the mud in the darkness. This pretty flower comes up. So I just want to make a um, a stand for
5: darkness. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Otherwise, it comes off as pogroms. Let me tell you. It's for dark, dark.
1: Well, no, but. But, but also the sacred feminine, the earthiness, the, the womb, the dark. That's what she's talking about. Yes,
5: so that's the unconscious what I'm holds it all. What I'm the saying unconscious. Is, but if you are constantly suppressing it, and you are constantly looking for a way to to vent your anger and your misery, you do terrible things. Right, so the darkness
1: is also the unconscious. Consciousness is the light that emerges from the unconscious. Without the unconscious, there can't be an emergence of light. Yes, we need to reclaim the sacred feminine.
0: Absolutely.
2: Suzanne. And, And in Christianity, there's a very, very important strain of mysticism called apophatic Theology, apophatic not mysticism. Not and it's exactly that. It's embracing the dark. Can you the darkness, translate apophatic? The, uh, apophatic. It, Anybody? It means, um, well, I don't know what it means literally, but it means embracing the dark. Okay. It's traveling toward the divine union through the darkness, that it's a, a more, what John of the Cross calls yeah. a more sure way, because if you travel in the light, you get distracted or you misinterpret. Whereas when you go to God in the absolute darkness, you you go through a more sure way because you're not misinterpreting, and and yes, it's right. it's purer, right. it's a, a purer darkness. So it's a very very important strain of Saint Christian mysticism. Dark, dark right. Yeah, St. John of the Cross's work was
1: called the right. Dark Night of That's the Soul. Exactly, Jay.
8: Yes, just in context of, of this eight days and born on the 25th. Uh, perhaps you could comment, I've heard a lot of rumors that this 25th was an unofficial date. Oh
2: show. yeah, we don't know when Jesus was born. If there so, were shepherds abiding the field, and it, right. they were pro- it was probably spring. I mean, you know, we don't know
8: when Jesus it was born. It was a good day to choose.
2: It was a good day to choose. There was already parties okay, going on. There's was a light in the darkness. That's right. It was, it don't mix a, up
1: history that we knew nothing yeah. about.
5: So what's With pedagogical- what's been
1: made, how this has become a meaningful story situated in the natural cycle of the year.
5: It's a and pedagogical. The Egyptians. Had a virgin. I'm sorry.
0: The well, Egyptians what the about Egyptians the
5: Egyptians? They did that. They did on the 25th. They had always a child born, the first one born on the 25th, way before any of this, and right. they said, "Yay, uh, the savior of our country is born of a virgin," and the whole country <laughs> celebrated the light and dark continuing. And you can find this in comparative mythology right. all across the Please universe. recall
1: that Egyptian mythology predates Greek mythology, which absorbed, once it conquered the Mediterranean, much of Egyptian mythology. That's how
4: it is.
1: The
5: another version of that. Yes,
1: There's the so Hindus do. It's, uh, the comparative mythology is fantastic. And, so, is,
8: and it shows that even the virgin birth is not a, a nowhere near a
5: new concept. It's a, a
1: motif. It's a motif that represents something to the human imagination.
5: Right, right.
1: Mm. Uh-huh. And I uh, said
5: about the virgin of the imagination. Now, uh, I, I,
1: have a, I have actually some other points I really want to make. Yeah. Can yeah. I? Yes.
5: Yes.
11: yes. No,
1: no, 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 no. I'm yes. not interrupting, Joy. I'm just talking no, to everybody. Right. Okay. I want to I wait. OK, so uh, this is all to the point. Everything we're discussing is to the point. I just, uh, just want to make sure I, I get a couple more uh, shots in about Hanukkah here. Uh, <laughs> So, the books of the Maccabees, interestingly enough, written in Greek, are part of the Christian Bible, right? Yes. They are not part of the Jewish Bible. <laughs> nope. In fact, they don't even exist in Hebrew translation. Um, now, one of the main reasons for that is that the only books that made it into the canon of the Hebrew Bible were books that could be authentic. People felt could be authentically ancient. So, no contemporary historical accounts made it into the canon. But there seems to be more than that, which is that the Hasmoneans, as some of you know, when they came into power, they held power. They were not, they, the Hasmoneans were a priestly family, but they were not part of the lineage of King David, for example. They were, this was a new ki- Jewish kingdom, the Hasmonean kingdom. And uh, uh, they lasted for about 100 years before they finally succumbed both to uh, uh, Roman pressure and to unbelievable internal corruption. Um, The Hasmoneans turned into a truly oppressive and repressive force as a ruling class. And the rabbis who were emerging in that period hated the Hasmonean regime, hated them. When you study the Talmud, there's almost no mention Of the history of hanukkah there's like a paragraph that says what's hanukkah it's when we were when antiochus did this to us and we we the few (laughs) defeated the many and came into the temple and they found it desecrated and they found the menorah and they had only oil for one night and it lasted eight nights and so we celebrate the festival of rededication Mm -hmm. the the hasmoneans garnished nothing they're forgotten uh, and are only reclaimed in, uh, you know, because the Book of Maccabees survives outside of Judaism, which is totally fascinating. So Hanukkah becomes Hanukkah as we know it during the Talmudic period, maybe the fourth or fifth century. We don't know somewhere around there, um, and repurposed by the rabbis not as a celebration of military victory primarily, but as a celebration of God's miraculous ability to uh, let, to allow what seems like not enough to last for eight days. Yeah.
11: It was also that the rabbis, having seen the temple destroyed and the incredible military might of Rome, didn't want the Jews ever to right. try to win by military might because they saw what happened. The ra- that was the mm-hmm. beginning of Jews saying, no, we'll go study someplace and we'll... We don't want anything to do with military.
1: I, I agree with that interpretation, which is that it appears that the rabbis downplayed military exploits in Jewish history uh, because they, uh, they were trying to survive and they were trying to reformulate a Judaism that could survive in exile without the apparatus of state or army because that was their necessity. And that, that's the Judaism we inherit. Now... In, in like a 60-second version. The Maccabees got resuscitated in the late 19th century with the emergence of Zionism. Oh, of course. Nationalist narratives need ancient heroes. Do, do I need to explain that more? Um, and no. emerging Jewish nationalists in the world of emerging nationalism in Europe searched for ancient heroes to lionize and model their own national struggle. The Maccabees were rehabilitated by the Zionists. There were clubs all over Europe called Maccabee clubs where they would practice gymnastics and weightlifting. And then there's the Maccabee games, which are the Jewish Olympic games. Um, so, so look how a holiday can be, how can be repurposed over and over again. Now, again, I'll leave that there and say, ah, what's happened in the last 60 years here in America? (laughs) Mm. Hanukkah has been repurposed.
5: Mm. So has Christmas.
1: Hanukkah has been repurposed in response to Christmas Um, and its ever-burgeoning presence Um, and becomes an opportunity for Jews to have Something to do,
4: <laughs> other than
1: Chinese
3: food in the movie. Right. Chinese
1: food. So, actually, actually, I want to bless you all. <laughs> you. If if you um, celebrate Christmas, and I really mean this, that it would be a blessed, joyous Christmas. And if you're even if you're a Jewish family that celebrates Christmas, I'm I'm like, I gave up a long time ago. You do what you want, <laughs> um, and. If or if you're one of those Jews that doesn't, then you may you enjoy Chinese food and a good <laughs> and movie. <laughs> yeah, that's what, we, that's what we do. Um, uh, Gail? Yeah. We
10: had um, our interfaith group that has been meeting for a couple of years now at the beginning of the month. And although Christmas was described wonderfully by the various Christian members, the Jews said Hanukkah, you know, we couldn't come up with anything. And so I've been thinking about it all month. And it occurred to me why don't that we could talk about it in a modern meaning in terms of this was the first rebellion against either an invading force or a governmental power
1: that said, you cannot worship as you choose. That's right. Hanukkah. This is an
10: American. And it's the
1: Americanization of Hanukkah. of Hanukkah.
10: But we don't talk about it that
1: way. Oh, I do. Do we? Yeah, I do. Okay,
10: well,
1: I do, it's, it's but I. T- over to oh, okay. <laughs> yes, Hanukkah has Hanukkah because it's a um, uh, a rebellion against religious oppression, freedom. can fit right in to the American ethos of freedom of religious worship, and so the the explosion of public menorahs around, which is a whole story in itself is a reflection of the Americanization of Hanukkah. When you go to Israel on Hanukkah, none of this is going on. The gift giving, the, the, the public, none of it's going on. People have their menorahs up and school is out. It's winter vacation because it's a country that follows the Jewish calendar. Um, we're almost out of time. Can you speak very briefly?
3: which is the sun, and the great festivity of Hanukkah, which is the light, which comes from the sun. Yes. And in Christianity, we celebrate the love of Jesus Christ.
1: As the light. Yes.
3: And as love. in, In early Christians of Ethiopia, early Christians, they... Represent in all their icons Jesus as light and warmth because they make reference as what the sun does. Right. We are, those countries, they are all sun worshipper countries, as other countries that worship the moon because they is the fresh air to the deserts. You need to
1: speak quickly now.
3: To the deserts. So here it is, I think, the complete togetherness of the christian celebrations are fabulous because it's light and love, just the beginning of the soul. Thank you. Light Thank you. One.
1: Thank you. Ruth? Yes, I just want to say that there are Jewish people out there that can explain
10: Hanukkah along many different factions. I was uh, very fortunate to grow up with all different um, conservative Orthodox as an adult, Reform Jewish renewal, Reconstructionist and can explain Hanukkah from all these different standpoints, as well as from a pagan standpoint. And I think it's very important for those of us that can do that to continue to speak about that, to have Hanukkah parties where we invite invite people from all different backgrounds, so that we can share the stories, share the songs. I sing the songs in Hebrew, in Yiddish, and in Spanish, so that we can talk about how Hanukkah took place in different countries at different times. So it saddens me when I hear that people can't explain what Hanukkah is, from either a military perspective or a religious really well, perspective or a pagan
1: perspective. Thank you, Ruth. So to- what I want to say about that, and then I can take one more comment, and then we're going to have to close, so you'll be the last commenter. Um, and then I, I, we have some closing comments to make. Um, is that in addition to all the explanations, and I think telling this history for me has value because I want us to understand how fluid interpretations are. However, the beauty of Hanukkah for me is lighting the candles, the experience. Same, right? Uh, So that speaks for itself also. And then teaching the interpretations is very important. But again, this gets back to the place of story and symbol in our lives. They speak to a part of ourselves that. Uh, is that, that, that uh, is, is our, we call it our soul, right? Our, our deep innards. And we all know what it means without, have, without necessarily articulating it. And that's a beautiful thing. Uh, but I'm so glad you're out there because we're in the business also as a minority in this country uh, trying to keep our traditions alive. Thank you.
9: last week about how the Vatican has repudiated converting Jews right. and
1: has advised the clergy to celebrate the intertwining of the two religions. I'm glad you brought that. This is an important article. Yeah. Um, it's not, yeah, it, it, the, the Catholic Church from in its, in its, you know, policy making is continuing to move forward on that. Uh, in terms of not just saying, okay, we're not going to uh, uh, demean the Jews or denigrate them. We're e- we're not even going to uh, uh, sanction trying to convert the Jews anymore. And that is where the Catholic Church is now. Thank you, thank you. What would either of you like to say, anything at all? Just and, and I have a final comment.
10: This has been such a wonderful
2: time, and um, as I said a couple weeks ago, it's like this holy tent in which we've. We've participated in the light. Yes, <laughs> it's been wonderful. So I'm, I'm so grateful. Thank you, thank you. Amen.
1: Amen. And what I want to say.
4: Hey, women too. Hey, women. <laughs> what, what, what,
1: I, what, I, want to say is, as a final kind of reflection on Judaism and Christianity, shared origins, different paths. We're looking at two celebrations, of, um, of the light. Increasing the light, bringing light into the world that are situated where humans have always situated these festivals at the time when the light, when we want the sun to come back and bring us light and warmth too. And so we sympathetically do that. That's the way we operate. And it's interesting to me to note that Hanukkah, in all its iterations, is fundamentally a festival of national liberation, right? That's the Jewish way. Our Judaism, as, uh, and I'm using this to make a point, because it's come up over and over, if there's something, one of, the, one of the real differences between Judaism and Christianity, not in terms of it's exclusively this and exclusively that, but what's the main chord that gets played? Do you know what I mean? Among all the themes that we play in our traditions, our festival celebrates our, our collective, as Jews, restoration of our Holy wholeness, right? It's a that's the way we operate. Judaism, Passover is about our liberation, you know, and that's how the Jewish narratives operate. Whereas the the Christian celebration is about the birth of this baby, who represents a a, as it were salvation, the opportunity for salvation. So, neither one is right or wrong. One doesn't contradict the other. But I just want to point out where the emphasis is and how the traditions took different roots. One retaining its identity as a people, the Jewish people's way, and the other as something that, that embraced a universal uh, mission. Would that be a fair thing to say? Sure, yeah. Um, and I thought that was fascinating to, to, to look at uh, how both these solstice holidays get, how, how you can learn a lot about the, where the culture's emphasis has been by, by looking at the story it tells.
0: Do you think that's why uh, Christianity has had more
5: missionary work?
1: Oh, well, we don't have time to talk about that now.
5: No. <laughs> <laughs> don't forget it's about love as well. We don't have it. Don't God. forget oh, that, that what you said about okay. salvation. But.
1: Salvation and love. When I used the word salvation, I was using it in I a save. very generous sense. Yeah. What saves us? Yeah. Right? Well, Compassion. one thing that saves us is kicking out the oppressor. Who's trying to kill us, right? And we need that. We need corpor. We need our corporate body to be able to be intact in order to pursue self fulfillment. Don't yeah. you right? That makes sense. Yeah. And love saves us, also. And they're not. They're, it's all happening at the same time. And there are different emphases. Exactly. Is what I'm pointing out. Exactly. Is that the different traditions. Do have different emphasis. Um, and they make a whole. That's, yes. Both yes. of those make a whole. Yeah, yeah, that's the point I wanted to make. So, um, uh, thank you. Thank and you. Uh, you'll hear from us about next talk opportunities.